0: I've never done labor like that. Mm -hmm. I felt, you know, my first day, we're going over what to do when you're approached by a rattlesnake or a mountain lion, and I'm feeling very much out of my league (laughs) and not prepared for
1: this. I've been thinking a lot lately about leaps of faith. What kind of courage does it take to make a leap of faith, not fully knowing what is on the other side? In this episode of Fuel Your Fire, we're talking with Alessandra Bassadana, a 2013 and 2014 graduate of Endicott College. Her undergraduate degree was in hospitality and she went for her MBA here. So she's a double gull. Alessandra has always been focused on sustainable hospitality before it even became the buzzword that it is today. And she had a vision not only for hospitality, but for her own self. And when she closed the books on her graduate studies here at Endicott College, she took that leap of faith. Currently, Alessandra is the hospitality coordinator at Promontory Wines in California. And how she got from Beverly to California is a story about taking that leap of faith. I'm Deirdre Sattarelli. This is Fuel Your Fire from the Engel Center for Entrepreneurship, and I'm glad you can join us. Welcome to Fuel Your Fire, presented by the Engel Center for Entrepreneurship. This podcast is
0: produced by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. If you want to build your own business, lead your life, and achieve your dreams, you've come to the right place.
1: Sandra, last time we saw one another, we were both on the East Coast, and this was, uh, you and I were just recollecting, a few years ago, um, mm-hmm. I'm struck by the fact that you were one of the first people to be actively thinking about responsible tourism and sustainable hospitality, and now you find yourself out on the, uh, the West Coast, but before we get talking about your being out on the West Coast, your thesis was in that area, wasn't it, when you were studying here at Endicom?
0: Yeah, so my um, choosing a thesis topic was actually a little bit difficult. I felt like um, maybe my topic wasn't going to reach everyone as as much as it's impacted me. And I think that probably was the case when I read it now. I could have jazzed it up a little bit more, (laughs) but I really wanted to go back to what inspired me to think about um, tourism in a different way and how I was really impacted growing up, um, traveling to these different places, and especially in um, Italy where my father is from, there's always a point to be made about where you are and why that's important. and. Um, a lot of the places i visited along the way which were called agritourism properties that was there were just little wooden signs that said agriturismo like along the way mm-hmm. and you essentially are stopping by someone's farm and someone's home and they're cooking for you and you're tasting things that they've grown um, the wine that they've made and it, it really was something that i ultimately thought that i wanted to pass along and to contribute myself and um, ultimately I started reading about agritourism what that really is and the connection between agriculture and tourism and how um, how what how it affects you know the environment the economy and the social effects as well um, and why it's really important and um, it's something that I've thought about since I was probably about 12 or 13 years old. And I I don't think I've ever stopped.
1: But that's when, you know, when you're aligned with your passion. Yeah. When you have that early recollection, when you were a child and you were starting to still think about that, that's a great place to be when you're in that. Yes.
0: I think after, you know, showing up to Endicott and talking to a lot of peers who are still figuring out things, I think that I, I probably had a more, um, firm vision on what I wanted to do, um, which is
1: something I'm thankful for, absolutely. <laughs> and you've always been very focused too, even when I knew you when we were studying together, you were a student, you were always very focused then.
0: Yeah, I remember um, I remember being very prepared and ready to hit the ground running. Um, and I think even by the time I was still 16 or 17 years old, I knew that I was going to have my master's when I was still 21, because I planned out that program and that schedule. Um, And it was always something I I really wanted to do. And you kind of have all of these thoughts and plans and ideas. And it was great to be in an environment where I could start to put pen to paper and kind of plan out what that would actually look like for me um, in the long term.
1: Yeah. And so that plan took you to the West Coast where you are now through the miracle of technology, you and I are are face to face, but you're on one coast and I'm on the other. So tell me about that decision.
0: Yeah, so um, in doing a lot of research um, and diving into wanting to essentially create an agritourism property, which for me, my, my vision was to create a farm and bed and breakfast Sort of um, in keeping, a new generation of in keeping was my goal, and, um, and when I had to start thinking about the actual physicality of it, how was I going? What was I going to buy, or how was I going to build something? And um, I started learning about net zero energy buildings and what that means, and prefab, uh, pre- prefabricated, and modular construction, and. Um, the history of that and how it's impacted um, the construction industry as well as real estate. And um, it's it was something that I was really interested in. California was one of the only states that I could find that was had very clear goals set um, for 2024 um, and for residential and otherwise um, construction. So... Um, Massachusetts actually as well. Now is, um, I've found a lot of new businesses opening up um, surrounding this sort of construction, but at the time, um, you know, wanting to incorporate wine and um, responsible building standards and everything, all signs left to California. So I packed up my little car and I um, started driving all the way across Um, the United States for about six weeks. I stopped all over the place and I finally ended up in the Central Coast, um, Monterey area, Carmel, and um, had a pretty rude awakening (laughs) because I had so many people that asked me why I didn't apply for jobs in advance before I moved and I was like, oh, that's silly. How could I, I don't know where I want to go. You know, like, how could I apply? So I wanted to see things for myself and feel things for myself. And, and um, I ended up really loving that um, coastal area there. And um, I was applying for jobs. And with a, a new MBA, I I thought that I would be, you know, I would be okay. but turns out that wasn't the case and it was actually quite difficult to find a job because I didn't have a permanent address in California and I didn't have anything showing that I was currently working which is totally accurate I wasn't I was trying to find a job so it was a pretty vicious cycle of you know people thinking I was a little bit crazy for doing what I did but eventually I did um apply in a tasting room and, um, at a small USA organic winery called Heller Estate. Um, it's been purchased since, but it was called Heller Estate. And, um, my dear former manager gave me a shot part-time, uh, just to make sure I wasn't crazy. And, uh, <laughs> I started working, um, in the tasting room there and also volunteering in the vineyards as, um, It wasn't really a a permanent position at that point, but I wanted to prove that I I could do the work.
1: (laughs) So shout out to the person that gave you that opportunity. I know, Mary Rose, what a doll. Shout out to Mary Rose, because it's (laughs) those little things. When you look back years later, you say, wow, that was actually a big thing, right? (laughs) Absolutely.
0: I really, I I guess you would say that I'm a little bit proud because I was not going to go home with my tail between my legs and I'm certainly not going to ask my parents for help. (laughs) that's what I, that's what I got.
1: (laughs) So you went, you were uh, in the tasting room and and then you became a wine club specialist. Tell me about that.
0: Yes. So, um, the transition was actually not totally intentional. Um, I, working in the tasting room was especially um, challenging for me um, as I'd never been sort of face-to-face sales previously. And that's really what it is. Um, you are, someone walks in and you try to relate to them and tell the story of where you work and what they're tasting and, in a way that relates to them. And um, hopefully they like what they're tasting and they like the story and they can feel like a part of the family and um, the wine club part of it is more managing preferences, remembering, you know, once they are a part of the family, you know, remembering their shipping preferences, remembering what wines they want to taste when they bring their friends and family and you know, making sure that they're very well taken care of um, because they're important. They're, they're a part of the family. And um, the um, it's actually a funny story because <laughs> I don't think my boss actually knows this one. but the shift wasn't um, intentional and I actually at the time was not planning on moving to Napa. I um, at the time, my father's friend, um, called me up and said that he, his friend's daughter was visiting um, Paso Robles, which is uh, another um, wine growing area a little bit further south of here. And well, quite further south. And um, so it, he thought it would be really important for me to meet with her and talk with her. She works in the wine industry in France and she was doing very well. And so I thought that was a great idea. So I went down and I spent some time with her and she really made a point to tell me that it was really important that I spent time in the vineyards. And that was really a, you know, in order to get to know where you're working and what you're doing and what you're selling, ultimately, you know, you need to have that time with in the actual agriculture. And she was right. And um, so she recommended that I apply to um, a couple of places in New Zealand where she had gotten her start and she was going to reach out um, on my behalf to her contacts there and, you know, set me up. So at this point, it was October and I was feeling very much like this was the right call. I wanted to take her advice. It was time that I, you know, did some dirty work. And I, um, you know, to have that personal introduction, I was like, this is perfect. And you were ready to move to New Zealand? So I hadn't moved, but she said it was, um, she wanted me. So at that point in October, at the end of October, harvest in California is nearly over. So the reason she was suggesting that I go to um, a, the to New Zealand or Australia essentially was because harvest begins in our winter months. So um, after the holidays that I would fly down there in January um, to work harvest. And so she said, you know, go on the website and apply. And, um, you know, I think there were three or four positions in different locations, Um, it was a quite large company. And she was going to, in turn, reach out to her connections. So um, at the time, you know, I left, I came back up, I had communicated to my dear Mary that, you know, I had made the decision that it was time for me to move on. And um, I thought this would be an important step for me to take. And she was of course, extremely supportive and lovely. And um, so I, at the time, thanks to, you know, just being a young person, I didn't have a ton of money. So my plan was to pack up my small car again with the things that I had, drive back to the East Coast for Christmas and leave my things at my parents' house and then take a, a flight after the holidays. And so I had given up my apartment and I was, you know, very much just, you know, doing this no matter what. Right. Laser focused, laser focused. And I was incredibly nervous. And there was, you know, something that I was just like, this is really crazy. I just met this person and I really was trusting her. And she, um, so, I, you know, it's like Thanksgiving, I haven't heard back yet, and I was like, okay, well, you know, she is busy, very busy, it's the holidays, she's traveling, and um, I had received an email from her that, after I had applied, that said, okay, great, you know, everything's great, and so then, you know, December's rolling around, and I still haven't heard, and I'm, you know, I kind of had to make the call whether I was going to, you know, stay or go, And I really wanted to be committed to it. So I left, I packed up my car again, and I drove my things. And I think I made it to Arizona, maybe, or somewhere, somewhere like that. And, you know, the rejection letters started rolling in, each one a little bit harsher than the next. While you're in transit. While I'm in transit, and I am thinking, what in the world have I done and, uh, you know, still to this day, it's been six years later, <laughs> I have not heard from her. But I think that, you know, I, I got home and I had to really sit down and think about what I was going to do. And I reached out to Mary, who promised on, um, you know, on my resume, or if someone were to reach out, that she would tell a little white lie and say that I was still working there. And so I didn't have like a six week gap in my um, my resume and uh, my work history. She is just the best, and so I was. I started applying for jobs in Napa, and I secured a few interviews. I flew out, and I ended up securing the job. <laughs> and as far as they knew, I was working down in Monterey and going to move up. So I had to fly home, pack up all of my things again. And make it back over on the way, you know, looking for apartments on Craigslist. You know that, but like how that goes. Yeah. And I ended up making it over here and starting, you know, at Sterling, um, Sterling Vineyards. Uh, Sixteen hours after I made it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You, and that's how I
1: ended up in Napa. <laughs> that's that's an amazing story. You were taking leaps of faith. Like with, cap- with a capital L and a capital F on faith. That's just crazy. I was. And my
0: family gives be such a hard time. They're just like, why do you make things so hard? And I'm like, I don't
1: know. <laughs> well, I mean, you were running hard at it. And I do think we'll have to figure out, we're going to have to get an Endicott t-shirt for this Mary. I don't know her, but. Right. <laughs> I know. She's just
0: the best. And she she always had my back. And um, she she really is wonderful. But yes, that is um. A pretty hilarious story as to how I
1: ended up here. (laughs) That is very, I'm just envisioning the map right now and you and your car going one way. I know it is
0: just unbelievable my I still have the same car that I had back in 2014 and I don't know how much longer it's gonna last
1: she, she's held on and she has got me through some stuff Here you go. so you're at Promontory now and yes. it's, you took your job at Promontory I recall right before COVID hit and you were going to be focused on events yes so what was that like
0: I technically started at Promontory in July of 2018, actually, and um, I did start with an events coordinator title, and um, that was because the first, the Promontory is the first one of the Harlan family's wine-growing endeavors to have the permitting to actually welcome guests um, in a hospitality format. Um, Harlan Estate and Bond um, do not actually have permits to welcome guests um, and do not have a a hospitality program in place. So Promontory was built um, with the idea in mind of welcoming our long-term patrons who've been great supporters over the years and finally having the space to share with them. And um, so with that, Uh, with those visits and tastings came, you know, requests for birthday parties and family celebrations. And so they were wanting to hire someone to help manage those. And um, my position quickly sort of shifted from not solely events to supporting the hospitality team um, in a larger sort of way. Um, The concierge team, as well as operations just around the winery. Uh, we're we're a fairly small team, so we all kind of put in effort where it's needed. And right. so I do um, a few things here, but I am um, mainly focused on larger gatherings um, with added components such as entertainment or potentially or culinary, especially. But um, you know things like that.
1: Okay. And so um, you had, so the, you couldn't host events during COVID.
0: Right. Yes, yeah, so I was feeling very, um, you know, as everyone was feeling very nervous when uh, COVID hit, it was very, um, I felt like I felt confident about the work that I was doing, and I felt supported by the team. And I, as someone who went to business school, I knew that, you know, sometimes decisions are made. Not based on how well someone's working, but because of you know necessity.
1: Business, right?
0: I'm really prepared to take the news that because there doesn't seem to be an end in sight for this, that there you know that I would either be furloughed or potentially let go. And uh, alternatively, what happened was that a lot of the hospitality team was invited to work out in the vineyards as the viticulture and wine growing teams were almost, they weren't not, un, they weren't not, not impacted, but they were operating um, pretty normally as agriculture was deemed um, essential. Okay. So the normal schedules were in place and instead of um, hiring on interns um, as they usually would, they had the support of um, the hospitality staff. And, uh, California at the time, I was I started that um, doing that work in April, and in June there was like a little glimmer of hope, like we things opened up slightly. So a lot of the team that host visits actually transitioned back to the winery and started helping out in different areas um, back at the winery grounds, and I instead stayed out in the vineyards um, because gatherings were not allowed and. it didn't look like they were going to be allowed for a really long time, so I, in turn, I I ended up staying out there with the viticulture team for almost I think I was a few weeks shy of a full year, and um, that was incredibly challenging. Um, I've never done labor like that. Mm-hmm. I felt, you know, my first day, we're going over what to do when you're approached by a rattlesnake or a mountain lion, and I'm feeling very much out of my league (laughs) and not prepared for this. And it was, you know, and still in the back of my mind, I thought it might be very temporary and more of a transition out and feeling very self-conscious about a lot of things like that. And ultimately, I had this, you know, I was either, you know, how I always am. I'm either in or I'm out. In
1: or out, right.
0: (laughs) I was very much in and I was very much moved by the piece of land that I was working on. And I was um, really impacted by the people I was working with, Um, very inspiring and hardworking teams that really are dedicated to research and development and dedicated to figuring out how to best be stewards of the land and how to communicate um, what we're trying to do through this art that we call wine. And um, the entire year was, I think, really a big deal for me. And I almost feel like a a different person afterwards. And um, just for a little background on Promontory, it was a piece of um, land that Mr. Harland It was actually more of a hidden valley that Mr. Harlan um, stumbled upon when he was hiking around Oakville in the 70s looking for the parcel of land that would be called Harlan Estate. And he, um, it was unavailable, it was owned by someone else, and um, it was somewhere he just kind of always loved to hike around and he had this vision for it. And uh, it turns out in 2008 that um, when the market crashed that the parcels became available and he and his son, Will Harlan and the director of wine growing, Corey Empting made the decision uh, to, you know, if they were going to take this on as the new generation um, and have it become promontory, uh, which of course it did. And, once they acquired the land, they had um, geologists come out to see what they were really dealing with. It's a huge piece of land, it's 840 acres, and about 10% is planted to vines, so little around 80 acres or so are planted. And it, it turns out that they discovered that um, there is um, that the the vines are planted on. A huge piece of metamorphic rock that runs through the vineyard, and as far as we know, we're the only vineyard in the world that's planted on metamorphic rock. And so, all of the research and development that the team had done over the years at Harlan State and at Bonds, you know, it's not that it wasn't relevant, but it was a new challenge and a completely different, you know, terrain to deal with, and very wild and you know, completely untamed.
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hearing from you and your personal journey, things that look like coincidences, but they're not because you, you, you've you always been very focused on preparation. And it sounds also too, like they were, even though he, so he had hiked the land and thought that, you know, he would like to have it at one, it's about being prepared. So when that moment happened in 2008, when the land became available to be able to, spring upon it.
0: Exactly. And that's something I felt when I started here as well. I was very inspired by the intention and the vision is because sometimes, you know, places and things make a huge impact on you. And it just kind of resonates in your consciousness or subconsciousness. And it's not until, you know, it kind of boils up later. And ultimately, I did get the time with the vineyards that I wanted to, even though it wasn't in New Zealand, you know, it was somewhere that was better for me and somewhere, you know, it was happened at the right time for me and in the right place. And um, it's always, you know, something I'm going to be very thankful for.
1: It was a very cool experience. And so you're at a vineyard now that's on metamorphic rock, and that might be um, an interesting segue. I know you're very focused on regenerative farming. So, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and how that applies to wine?
0: Yes. So, um, one thing, and one thing I would really recommend to any listeners is um, a documentary on Netflix called Kiss the Ground and um, very, very informative and well-made um, documentary about what happened in the 1930s um, with the Dust Bowl and how ultimately that led to you know, this industrial agriculture and how things really changed ever since. And uh, it's narrated by Woody Harrelson and who doesn't love that guy? So really, it's a good one. <laughs> And um, so, after you know, after the Dust Bowl, essentially, 200 million acres were permanently damaged in the United States. And then, um, having pesticides and um, you know more of the industrial agriculture, more as we know it today, um, really, it feels like the road to recovery can sometimes be. It can feel really impossible. Mm-hmm. And There's this new, it's not necessarily new, but the way that it's being communicated now um, is new and trying to gain more attention. And it's called regenerative farming, which is um, essentially we need to regenerate the topsoil of the earth um, so that it draws carbon down from the atmosphere instead of releasing carbon into the atmosphere. And it's something that um, there's, um a lot of really interesting literature on it but it is the way that we farm here and um it's something like i mentioned promontories of approximately 840 acres but we never intend to you know really mess with it <laughs> it's what is there is what is there and we're um it is wild and untamed and it's intended to stay that way um and it, a lot of you know, a lot of what we do um, is just trying to interrupt this cycle um, so that we can start to repair some of the damage that has been done. Um, But it is, you know, it's um, something that's going to require a lot of work and a lot of communication and something that is, um, you know, I hope inspires people to, you know, think twice about Things that they eat and where they buy food from and um, you know how much of an impact it really has. Are you hopeful that things can be reversed? I am. Um, I I think that it I I guess I have good days and bad days. There are there's a lot of um, there's a lot of negative news that exists so sometimes the process feels very daunting and I think that but then on the other hand, you have this new generation, um, as I've listened to in uh, some of the podcasts um, through Fuel and Endicott, where you have these new generations of kids that are, you know, what are we doing at school to, you know, fight against climate change? How are we, you know, making a difference? And I think that that's really the big difference is that yes damage has been done but that doesn't mean that it can't be fixed and it it is something that's going to take a lot of effort and time but i mean all things take all good things
1: take effort and time so. they, do. they do so we, regenerative farming is one trend what else are you seeing in hospitality in terms of like what I call um, mega trends, right? So something that you think is going to be really pivotal in the industry.
0: Well, specifically in restaurants, I think it's really interesting um, that the farm to table concept is trendy and that's something that is really to be supported. Um, That whole idea of having, going to a restaurant and having food that was you know grown there is exactly what regenerative farming is talking about and i think that that is one mega trend I'm, i think it's pretty mega but maybe in california it's more mega than other than elsewhere but um, i i think that that is really huge and really interesting that the the farm to table is A really big marketing tool now to attract more young um, hipster, you know, young cool kids (laughs) to restaurants, Um, and I think that a lot of people are, you know, impacted by veganism and how, you know, the more education that exists around these different routes and outlets that you can take to, you know, think twice about you know, what you're putting in your body, um, but you're releasing essentially as well. And um, that was something that I I always think is really cool.
1: So uh, people have a romantic idea of what it's like to work at a winery. Just tell us, like, what's a typical day? What time are you up in the morning? What time do you end your day? And what happens in between?
0: Of course. So, I mean, it was, I have to say, my past year was quite romantic. It was Exactly what you would imagine. Uh, waking up very early around 5 a.m. and um, heading out to the vineyards and watching the sunrise and uh, doing this work in this, you know, completely peaceful, tranquil space. And um, now transitioning back, it is much more, you know, hospitality is back in old force. And I, um, we really have not seen <laughs> so much enthusiasm around um tourism especially in Napa as we are seeing now and um so my days now are more I still get up at five o'clock because I'm not really sure I can ever turn that off at this point <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's an incredible clock. <laughs> I still wake up and I'm like oh my god I'm late
0: you know like I'm not late for the things um but the I still get up early, and I still am really lucky and fortunate to work in such a beautiful place. So I still get to the winery and have a coffee and you know, take my time starting my day. And a lot of the my time right now is focused on supporting the concierge' team because we are fielding a lot of requests. and it's um, we we want to make sure that everyone is being heard and their time is respected and um, though we don't have the ability to welcome every single person we want to ensure that we have their details so that you know we can remain in touch and hopefully welcome them another time and the pure volume of requests at this point um, for both events um, from our patrons that really want to get together with their families and their loved ones to celebrate you know, the light at the end of the tunnel as it's feeling right now. Right. Um, you know, we we are just, um, you know, a lot of planning right now, a lot of celebration and a lot of,
1: there's a lot of joy
0: um, in the air.
1: That's nice. That's pretty nice. Cool. You get to work at a job where there's joy in the air. There, it really is. That's you know, really nice.
0: Certainly don't take anything for granted. My friends are always making fun of me. It's like, you know, they're complaining about their bosses or their co-workers and they're like, oh, Alessandra, well, how's your work? Everything's just perfect and beautiful and you love everything. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs>
1: That's right. It <laughs> yeah, so, that was a great day, actually. <laughs> and, and I'm imagining too in your line of work, weekends are in play. So it's not just a Monday through Friday. Yes, right? certainly, yes.
0: And, you know, whatever time it takes, to get the work done properly is the time it takes. And, um, you know, I very much love that hustle and I, I really thrive in it, actually. I think that there's, you know, we've already discussed, I might be slightly crazy, but the, the adrenaline of it is something that it turns out I'm very attracted to. And ultimately looking back on the fuel program, I, it was the project management and things like that that I really loved. I like having a a checklist and things that keep me organized and I love managing projects and so I'm really able to do that here um, which
1: has been really cool and interesting for me to learn about myself. So before we actually started to record this you had mentioned about a wine appreciation course that you took at Endicott. Do you want to give a shout out to that professor?
0: Yes, uh, I would love to shout out Peter Jenner. Um, I definitely remember those classes, and I remember um, how we connected on my favorite wine, which was the Vino Nobile di Montepulciano. And it was something that I had taken a small class in when I studied abroad in Florence, but I was so, so looking forward to a class at Endicott and he made it such a great class. And I, I think about him often. So I'd love to shout him out and hopefully he reaches out if he's ever in Napa, I'd love to see him.
1: <laughs> I'm sure he'll be reaching out now. <laughs> <laughs> great. So if you would uh, do some time travel in 20 years, how do you think agritourism is going to look?
0: I feel like, like life happens in seasons and growth, also can't really happen without roots. And it's like right now, we are really establishing some great roots. And I would love to see this continued enthusiasm in treating ourselves. And I really hope that there is more awareness around tourism and doing it responsibly. There's a little part of me that recognizes that with the boom in hospitality that is probably happening right now and is going to continue throughout this year, um, it's just, you know, wanting, wishing that people, you know, remain as responsible as they can and respectful of where they're traveling. And um, I certainly am interested to see how net zero energy requirements continue to um, be goals and how that impacts, um, a lot of what is, um, being built and, um, yeah, how that really connects ultimately the land that you're growing on to the facilities that you use, you know, should be cohesive in that sense. And that's the, the vision I've always had in mind.
1: So maybe next time when you drive to the East coast, you'll be in an electric car. (laughs)
0: let's hope so I'd love one of those self-driving (laughs)
1: Teslas we'll work on that too yeah we'll work on that (laughs) Alessandra it's been great talking with you
0: you too Deirdre I've missed you so and it has been such a pleasure and thank you so much for having me
1: thank you The podcast Fuelia Fire is brought to you in part through a generous donation from the Cummings Foundation. If you or your business would like to get involved with Fuelia Fire, drop us a note at ecfuel, that's E-C-F-U-E-L, at endicott.edu. Thanks for your support.